0: hey everyone welcome back to the haunted demon slash insanity forever podcast and before we get right into it i want to wish everyone a happy new year i hope everyone had an awesome um new year's eve hope you all enjoyed your, your night out, night in, spending it with family or friends. So yeah, to start the new year, we're gonna crack on with um two um two true crimes. Um, so the first one is Boy in the Box. The boy in the box is the name given to an unidentified murder victim, a four to five-year-old boy whose naked, battered body was found in a basinette box in the Fox Chase section of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on February 25th, 1957. He is also commonly called America's unknown child. His, ident- his identity has never been discovered and the case remains open. In February 1957, the boy's body, wrapped in a plaid blanket, was found in the woods off Susquena Road in Fox Chase, Philadelphia. The naked body was inside a cardboard box which had once contained a bayonet of the kind sold by J. C. Penny. The boy's hair had been recently cropped, possibly after death, as clumps of hair clung to the body. There were signs of severe malnourishment, as well as surgical scars on the ankle and groin and an L shaped scar. Under the chin, the body was first discovered by a young man who was checking his musk rat traps, fearing that the police would confiscate his traps. He did not report what he had found. A few days later, a college student spotted a rabbit running into the underbrush. Knowing that there were animal traps in the area, he stopped his car to investigate and discovered the body. He too was reluctant to have any contact with the police but he did report what he had found the following day. The police received the report and opened an investigation on February 26, 1957. The dead boy's fingerprints were taken and police at first were optimistic that he would soon be identified. However, no one ever came forward with any useful information. The case attracted massive media attention in Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley. The Philadelphia Inquirer printed 400,000 flyers depicting the boy's likeness, which were sent out and posted across the area and were included with every gas bill in Philadelphia. The crime scene was combed over and over again by 270 police academy recruits who discovered a man's blue corduroy cap, a child child scarf and a man's white handkerchief with the letter G in the corner. All clues that led nowhere, the police also distributed a post-mortem photograph of the boy fully dressed and in a seated position, as he may have looked in life. In the hopes it may lead to a clue, despite the publicity and sporadic interest throughout the years, the boy's identity is still unknown. The case remains unsolved to this day. <laughs> On March 21, 2016, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a forensic facial reconstruction of the victim and added him into their database. In August 2018, Barbara Ray Venter, a genetic genealog- genealogist who helped to identify the Golden State Killer using a DNI profiling technique said that she was using the same method to try to identify the boy in the box. Amateur groups that use online databases, such as the Doe Network and Web Sleuths, have also tried to solve his identity. His identity theories. Many tips and theories have been advanced in the case, although most of these have been dismissed. Two theories have generated considerable interest among the police and media. They have each been extensively investigated. investigated. (coughs) The foster home. Forensic facial reconstruction, showing what the boy may have looked like when alive, this theory concerns a foster home that was located approximately 1.5 miles, 2.5 kilometers from the site of the body. In 1960, Remington Bristow, an employee of the medical examiner's office, who doggedly pursued the case until his death in 1993, contacted a New Jersey psychic, who told him to look for a house that matched the foster home. When the psychic was brought to the Philadelphia Discovery Site, she led Bristow directly to the foster home. Upon attending a, me, an estate sale at the foster home, Bristow discovered a basinette similar to the one sold at Penny. He also discovered blankets hanging on the clothesline that were similar to the one in which the boy's body had been wrapped. Bristow believed that the boy belonged to the stepdaughter of the man who ran the first home and that they disposed of his body. So the stepdaughter would not be exposed as an unread mother. He theorized that the boy's death had been an accident. Despite this circumstantial evidence, the police were not able to find many definite links between the boy in the box and the Foster family. In 1998, Philadelphia Police Lieutenant Tom Augustine, who was in charge of the investigation and several members of the RIDOC Society, a group of retired policemen and profilers, interviewed the Foster father and the stepdaughter whom he had married. The foster home investigation was closed. The woman known as Martha or M. Another theory was brought forward in February 2002 by a woman identified only as Martha. Police considered Martha's story to be plausible but were troubled by her testimony as she had a history of mental illness. M claimed that her abusive mother had purchased the unknown boy, whose name was Jonathan, from his birth parents in the summer of 1954. Subsequently, the boy was subjected to extreme physical and sexual abuse for two and a half years. One evening at dinner, the boy vomited up his meal of baked beans and was given a severe beating with his head slammed against the floor until he was semi-conscious he was given a bath during which he died these details matched information known only to the police as the coroner had found that the boy's stomach contained the remains of baked beans and that his fingers were water water wrinkled M's mother cut the boy's distinctive long hair Accounting for the unprofessional haircut, which police noted in their initial investigation. In an effort to conceal his identity, M's mother forced M to assist her in dumping the boy's body in the fox chase area. Em said that as they were preparing to remove the boy's body from the trunk of a car, a passing male motorist pulled alongside to inquire whether they needed help. M was ordered to stand in front of the car's license plate to seal it from view. While the mother convinced the would-be-good mountain that there was no problem, the man eventually drove off. This story corroborated confidential testimony given by a male witness in 1957 who said that the body had been placed in a box previously discarded at the scene. <coughs> in spite of the outward plausibility of M's confession, police were unable to verify her story. Neighbours who had access to M's house during this date did time period, denied that there had been a young boy living there, and dismissed M's claims as ridiculous. Other theories. Forensic artist Frank Bender developed a theory that the victim may have been raised as a girl. The child's unprofessional haircut, which appeared to have been performed in haste, was the basis for this scenario. As well as the appearance of the eyebrows having been styled, (coughs) in 2008, Bender released a sketch of the unidentified child, with long hair reflecting the strands found on the body. In 2016, two writers, one from LA, California, Jim Hoffman, and the other from New Jersey, Louis Romano, explained that they believed they had discovered a potential identity from Memphis, Tennessee, and requested that DNA be compared between the family members and the child. The lead was originally discovered by a Philadelphia man who introduced Romano and Hoffman to each other and was developed and presented. With the help of Hoffman to the Philadelphia Police Department and the Vidoc Society in early 2013, in December 2013 Romano became aware of the lead and agreed to help the man from Philadelphia and Hoffman to obtain the, the DNA from this particular family member. In January 2014, which was sent quickly to the Philadelphia Police Department, local authorities confirmed that they would investigate the lead, but said they would never they would need to do more research on the circumstances surrounding the link to Memphis before comparing DNA. In December of 2017, Homicide Sergeant Bob Kormar confirmed that DNA taken from the Memphis man was compared to the Fox Chase boy, and there was no connection. <coughs> the burial The boy in the box was originally buried in a potter's field in 1990. His body was exhumed for the purpose of extracting DNA which was obtained from enamelled on a tooth. He was reburied at Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarbrook, Philadelphia, which donated a large plot. The coffin, headstone and funeral service were donated by the son of the man who had buried the boy in 1957. There was significant public attendance and media coverage of the reburial. The grave has a large headstone bearing the words, American, America's unknown child. City residents keep the grave decorated with flowers and stuffed animals. <coughs> so... And as of now, the case is still unsolved and open so that was the boy in the box if that wasn't enough to frighten you a bit we are now going going to move on to murder of Katerina Zorada the murder of Katerina, Katerina Katerina Zorada occurred at the end of 1998 in Krakow, Poland. (coughs) The victim was a 23-year-old female student who was attending Jaglionian University. Investigators and experts from other countries were called to assist in solving the crime, including the FBI. Police made the first arrest in 2017, 19 years later, after discovering new evidence as of September 2019. The suspect remains in custody, while investigators continue to gather evidence. Disappearance and discovery of remains In 1998, Katarzyna Zawada began began studying religion at Jagiellonian University located, located in nearby Krakow. According to friends, she was a nice, although sad and withdrawn person. She had suffered from depression since the death of her father in 1996 during her time at the university. She changed her field of study twice, after her first semester as a psychology student. She briefly attended a history course before settling on religious studies. On 12th, 12th of November 1998, Katarzyna was due to meet her mother at the psychiatric clinic in Norahota where she had been treated for her depression. She never made it it to the appointment later that day. Katarzyna's mother attempted to file a missing persons report at the local police station, but was told to wait. On the 6th of January 1999, while on the Vistula, the crew of the elk, Pusher Tug found a piece of foreign matter on the ship. After examination, it was discovered to be human skin. DNA tests indicated it belonged to Katarzyna on 14th January. Katarzyna's right leg was also recovered from the river. In May 1999, the forensic medicine unit in Krakow received a corpse of a man with a severed and scalped head. The killer, Vladimir W., turned out to be the son of the victim, originally from the Caucasus prior to the arrest. He was seen in a mask, made of skin, pulled from the head of his own father. Initially, investigators suspected that Vladimir committed Katarzyna's murder. However, no evidence was found to support it. He was later charged with his father's murder and sentenced to 25 years in prison. After a few years, he was transferred to a prison in Russia as his own re- request. A year later, the investigation was formally dropped because the perpetrator had not been discovered, but police officers involved in the case continued investigating credible leads. In 2012, thanks to advances in the field of forensic research and cooperation with experts, the prosecutor's office resumed the investigation. A team of police officers from the X-Files, called the case unit, was brought in. The exhumation and additional autopsy of Kazazina's remains were ordered. Experts from the 3D Expertise Laboratory of the Rockland Medical University created a model of injuries inflicted on the victim. They concluded that the attacker had used a sharp tool to wound his victim on her neck, armpit and groin to inflict pain and cause her to bleed to death. In 2014, an FBI representative for Europe created a psychological profile of the subject pointing to his sadi- sadistic tendencies. In 2016, investigators consulted with the University of Coimbra Professor Dr. Nuno Vieira, a Portuguese specialist in forensics and a UN expert in the field of signs of torture on the human body. He confirmed that Casadina was co- tortured before her death. And that the perpetrator was probably trained in martial arts, specifically one particular undisclosed, undisclosed variation. The arrest of the subject of the suspect on fourth October 2017, 19 years after the murder, police arrested fifty two year old Robert J. in Krakow. Casimir's district, investigator searched his apartment and found blood in the bathroom. As a result, the bath and, the, and frame were secured for further testing. He was a person of interest in 1999, but had not been arrested. Robert J. fit the psychological profile. As he was trained in martial arts, knew the victim, visited the victim's grave, and had a history of harassing women. He had previously worked in a dissecting lab where he dealt with human corpses. He also worked at the Krakow Institute of Zoology, where he could observe the process of preparing animal skins. His employment was terminated the day after he called he killed all of the Institute's rabbits during his shift. Robert J. couldn't explain his actions. The police detained him after a letter from the suspect's friend. The contents of the letter are a closely guarded secret of the investigation. Robert J. was charged with aggravated murder with particular cruelty. He maintains that he did not know Katarina Zorada. Zorada, the Courts of Appeal agreed to extend his detention until 6th of September 2018. While investigators gathered evidence in December, Robert J. complained of harassment from the prison guards. The claims were investigated and found to be groundless. As of 2019, Robert J. has not yet been released. Investigators requested a closed trial. So. What did you make of that? Both of them are very interesting um slightly creepy and how- howling. but <coughs> let me know what you think so those were the two stories uh real true crime stories for today's episode I'd like to say that I wish everyone a happy new year. I I hope everyone stays safe, looks after themselves. Uh, for those of you, for those of you struggling with mental health, I hope you take give yourself self care. Um, look after yourself. Don't put pressure on yourself on meeting deadlines do what you need to do so until then this was the haunted the haunted demon and i will see you next time